and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Edward W. DeBarbieri, Associate Professor of Law at Albany Law School. We will discuss his draft article, Opportunism Zones. So welcome to the show, Ted. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, so I really found this article interesting and and timely, and it touched on the subject that I'd only heard about in passing. So for listeners who, like me, who might not be familiar with Opportunity Zones, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what they are, when they were created, and what they were intended to accomplish. Absolutely. Uh, Opportunity Zones, especially for listeners who haven't heard of them before, were part of the 2017 Tax Overhaul, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So originally proposed as the Investing in Opportunity Act, the Opportunity Zone is an economic development tool for urban and rural areas uh, that have been designated by states and then certified by Treasury. And here's basically how they work. Uh, individuals or entities or businesses that have capital gains uh, from the sale of some type of property, whether it's real estate or small business, uh, instead of paying tax on that uh, gain, that capital gain, can invest the proceeds from the sale into a particular type of uh, project, whether it's a business or real estate in one of these designated zones. And in exchange for doing that, the taxpayer doesn't have to pay, or in some cases doesn't have to pay any uh, capital gains tax on the on that sale. Um, so it's potentially very powerful for the for individuals who have capital gains, and it's uh, you know seventy percent. So one the the top one percent of taxpayers have seventy percent of the capital gains. So the ben, you know the, the the potential beneficiaries, at least on the tax avoidance side, are folks who have capital gains. On the, you know, the intended beneficiaries, however, are low-income communities. The question is, though, and really the, 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 the crux of the paper you know, and, um, is, will the benefits of this tool actually develop low-income areas? And um, I'm very suspicious that they will. And uh, you know, there are a number of other commentators have, too, uh, have expressed some, some um, misgivings also, but in, in the paper, I you know, look at particularly problematic or particularly challenging uh, subsidies or projects that are being subsidized or could be subsidized through this uh, tool and question, you know, why are we giving subsidies away for projects that are already going to happen, for instance? That's sort of in a nutshell what they are and, and, and uh, the vintage when they came about. So why is that so attractive to the people who might take advantage of them? In other words, why might certain property owners or investors find this opportunity to avoid or defer or something <laughs> relating to capital gains taxes attractive? And what kinds of potential benefits are we talking about to those individuals? Well, you know, there's two main reasons why you know, like wealthy individuals would get excited about this. First, uh, they don't like capital gains taxes. You know, politically, the uh, uh, folks in, in Congress have been pushing for the, um, the 
neoliberalization of tax policy to have a, you know, we, we know about the trickle down effect. Um, you know, uh, Jack Kemp and others have pushed in um, you know, sort of throughout the 80s and 90s to get government, to get the federal government at least out of giving uh, direct economic development uh, subsidies from, from the federal government to, to places. Um, and the Opportunity Zone is picking up on tools that have been tried before in the past. At the state level, we had state uh, enterprise zones. At the federal level in the 1990s, we had empowerment zones. So in, in many ways, uh, this is not a new tool, but it's a similar theme that focuses around you know, this first issue of helping wealthy individuals avoid taxes. The second you know, sort of reason that investors would get excited about this is the potential for outsized gains that the Opportunity Zone has. Um, I, I present in the paper some analysis that uh, uh, that indicates you know, potential, potentially for doubling one's investment if certain um, criteria or requirements are met. Uh, so investors can receive, can benefit not just from you know, buying a, a piece of commercial real estate or buying a business and seeing that piece of real estate or that business increase in value, but the direct subsidy from the government can double the, or can create in some cases up to 100% uh, or around 100% increase in their investment. So that's very attractive, both the capital gains, both the avoidance of taxes, but also the appreciation or the, the additional benefit. Hmm. Well, so, I mean, to make it a little more specific, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how sort of the way opportunity zones would function was sort of described when the policy was proposed. Um, maybe a little bit about like how people have actually used it in practice and sort of to the extent that there might be even more problematic uses, what you think those might look like and why we should be worried about them. When the Opportunity Zone was proposed, it had and still has bipartisan support. So uh, Senator Tim Scott in South Carolina has been a champion of it. Uh, Senator Cory Booker and others um, in the Democratic Party have as well. So it's, it's important just to recognize that it has bipartisan support. Um, you know, and it does largely because it has something for everyone on the conservative side, you know, the uh, re reduction of capital gains on the sort of, you know, more liberal or progressive side, the, the intended beneficiaries are low income communities. That's the idea. The, the challenge, though, is really whether or not whether or not community, poor communities will benefit from this subsidy or this giveaway to wealthy individuals. And we have a lot of reasons to be suspicious, but I think the most important one is we don't even know, uh, or and we don't even. So it's two years into the program, we don't know because uh, we don't know that the extent of um, businesses or investors that are taking advantage of this subsidy because there's no reporting requirements in the original bill in the Investing in Opportunity Act. There were requirements that. Uh, folks who were taking advantage of the subsidy had to report to, to the government, you know, had to report to Treasury, to the IRS, what they were uh, investing in, what the value was. There's been proposals to um, include those provisions which were taken out 
when the opportunity zone was put into the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. But as it is right now, there's no requirement that investors actually report. So what we have is some voluntary reporting data, uh, which indicates that at least at least for the folks who are voluntarily reporting, the uh, investor interest is seemingly slightly lower than what um, the Trump administration has been touting. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin has has estimated that over $100 billion, $100 billion with a B, would be invested in poor communities. What we've seen so far is closer to eight or uh, sort of eight billion uh, through folks who are voluntarily reporting. So at least, uh, you know, there's been, there was a lot of hype because of the potential benefits for, uh, to, to investors. In reality, those, uh, uh, those estimates seem a little bit high, but again, we don't actually know. Um, so without the full picture, it's difficult to say what uh, is actually going on. So that's you know, one of the reforms that has been proposed already in Congress um, by Senator Scott and others who are proponents of the Opportunity Zone is to include uh, transparency requirements that are, you know, I, I would argue, are very important or key to assessing the usefulness of this tool. Mm. Well, to the, to the extent we have any idea of how opportunity zones are actually being used? Is there any reason to think that there are ultimately benefits that are flowing to lower income communities? And, you know, are there concerns about like impacting the tax base for, for example? And, and, and I guess one thing that really struck me about your discussion in the article. I mean, what are concerns that we might have about how people might take advantage of the way the act is currently structured in order to sort of achieve benefits for themselves without necessarily providing benefits to to low-income communities? It would be great if the Opportunity Zone does provide new uh, economic activity in areas that need it. Um, I, you know, it, it would be great if the, you know, I, I give a hypothetical at the start of the paper, you know, an individual in, in Kansas is going to sell their business and uh, they invest the, uh, the, the proceeds. Let's say they're going to sell their business for $10 million. Instead of just putting that money in their pocket and paying around $2 million in capital gains taxes, they take that $10 million and then invest it, let's say, in a opportunity zone in Topeka uh, for, let's say, a mis- mixed-use uh, residential and commercial development. That construction project will yield jobs and, you know, uh, the uh, additional benefits of having you know, economic activity in a depressed area, and that's that's potentially important. The problem really is, uh, you know, looking looking at another instance. So in in downtown Portland in Oregon. The, enti- uh, the, the central business district in Portland is designated an opportunity zone, not an area that's starved of capital. And what we're seeing is a, one particular developer is uh, using is planning high-rise luxury condos on uh, a number of uh, parking lots that they own that they, they've essentially been you know putting sites together for these new developments, and they're going to r- receive a windfall of subsidy from the Opportunity Zone, um, when in fact, for, for, for business reasons, they would do the project anyway. 
Um, and you know, there's this greater issue. It, it would be great if, or it, it would be, it would be important if areas that are starved of capital do receive new investment. Um, the problem is investors are when they're evaluating where to put their money, typically are not going to look at the most the most distressed financially area. They're going to look for places that are just on the margins of uh, otherwise extreme, you know, very economically productive areas. So metropolitan regions that already do very well are likely to receive the bulk of the investment. New York City is competing with, you know, or Albany, where I'm based in New York State, has a number of opportunity zones. My office is based in one um, in right now. We're competing with otherwise uh, very you know, built up and developed areas like, let's say, New York City's Long Island City, where Amazon was going to locate their headquarters. If an investor is looking at investing uh, in you know, our area versus, let's say, uh, you know, New York City or Long, Long Island City in particular, they're like, more likely to pick an area where the return is going to be higher. So I, you know, in my research or for this article, I, I noticed that there were some community-based or mission-based uh, organizations, um, some community de development finan financial institutions, which are certified by Treasury and have um, a mission-based focus to provide capital to low-income areas. Some of those organizations are uh, in getting involved in opportunity zone investing. However, the, there's significant disincentives for investors who have most of the cash to invest to put money into those mission-based um, you know, project vehicles. So that, that's a big problem that is, it hasn't, hasn't been addressed by the legislation and is a you know, significant part of why I'm writing this piece to begin with. Mm. Well, so Ted, in in your article, you talk about opportunity zones as a form of place based economic development, and I wonder if you could talk about opportunity zones, sort of in the broader historical context of place based economic development. In other words, what other kinds of place based place based economic development tools? has the government used and which have been successful or unsuccessful in the past? And sort of to the extent we know, like what sort of accounts for the success or lack thereof of those kinds of economic development tools? There are a number of other tools that have been used at both the federal um, and state level to develop particular places. And as a community economic development person, I direct a community economic development clinic uh, based in New York's capital region. I get really excited about place-based economic development tools. These are the types of programs that uh, my clients are using, or I'm, I'm training students to take advantage of and, and understand and appreciate. So some of the other, some of the tools that um, have drawn comparisons to the Opportunity Zone are the Community Development Block Grant, which uh, came about in the 1970s. Um, the federal government give, you know, allocates a certain amount of money, around $9 billion a year, uh, to uh, states and localities to disperse uh, CDBG funds. The New Markets Tax Credit is probably the closest uh, other tool to the Opportunity Zone. And again, this is uh, similar to the Opportunity Zone. This uh, the, the New Markets Credit focuses on develop, um, 
commercial developments in particular areas that are low income. Um, the one difference with the new markets credit that's worth noting is that uh, there needs to be a mission-based community development entity uh, involved in the allocation of the new markets tax credit. That work that would in um, pre you know, presumably require or that that requires particular types of uses that further and uh, and, and benefit low-income individuals. Now there are market rate or there there are market based projects that do benefit from the new markets tax credit. There is retail and some other types of uses that may not seem like they have an obvious connection to benefiting low-income communities. Uh, however, this, the requirement that there is a mission-based organization involved, I think is important to making sure that the types of projects that are selected go through some type of vetting process and are have an accountability mechanism. The, the, uh, you know, the question about whether or what makes place-based programs successful and you know whether the, the the community development block grant or the new markets tax credit are successful really I think de depends on the type of analysis and uh, reporting that happens um, this is an area that continues to be studied by Scott by scholars academics as well as practitioners and in in the research that that I did for this piece, there's, uh, I think, a, I don't know if it's a consensus, but there's a there's an argument that certainly programs like the CDBG are understudied and un the successes are underreported. Um, the um, the pro the tool the the CDBG at least could benefit from a diff from additional uh, touting of its successes. On the new markets tax credit side, there's a coalition of groups that. Uh, take it that use the, the new markets tax credit they publish a report discussing in, in great detail the types of projects and as well as the, the the benefits and successes that they have for the opportunity zone what we what we don't know now and what the legislation lacks which is a huge problem is any assessment with respect to metrics of uh, success so we we don't know how many jobs at least argue, arguably will be created um, by the particular projects. We don't know how many housing units and whether there's any affordability uh, baked into that. Um, so this is an area that I think is ripe for uh, focus and study, and um, especially in an interdisciplinary way, uh, economists as well as political scientists have a lot to contribute um, in addition to the legal scholarship that uh, I'm hoping this piece contributes to. Mm. Well, so it, it struck me when reading the article that in order to evaluate the success of a program of this kind, we really need to know sort of what the legitimate goals of place-based economic development would be. And I mean, obviously, like something like, you know, solving market failures is one kind of potentially legitimate goal. Maybe something like distributive justice or something like that would be a legitimate goal as well. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what the goals of place-based economic development are or should be, and if there are ways that they might be used that might kind of conflict with what we think the legitimate goals are. 
I don't think that there's that there's shared agreement about the what the goals of place-based economic development tools should be. Um, to, to my mind, though, it's very clear. Um, we have, you know, uh, recent scholarship by folks like Richard Rothstein um, in the, the Color of Law talks about uh, the practice of reg redlining and segregated housing practices, and makes the argument for uh, de jure. Um, segregated housing practices over the, you know, in, in, in the 1900s, or especially sort of the, the, the mid the mid 1900s and early 1900s, and programs like place based or, or place based economic development tools can and should address the um, uh, the harms caused by uh, redlining and practices where. Um, uh, Potential homeowners were denied credit based on their race, and uh, place-based economic development tools play an important role in uh, addressing at law that those types of practices. Um, in addition, um, so, you know, so I think that that's that's sort of a fundamental uh, point or fundamental goal. In addition, those communities continue to struggle based uh, following um, periods of urban renewal that largely led to suburbanization and white flight that um, sucked money out of uh, certainly out of urban core areas as well as uh, rural areas that didn't benefit from the uh, the rise of suburbanization. So place-based economic de development tools can play a role in addressing some of those wrongs. Um, some of the features that I talked about before that make them politically expedient or politically popular are potential incentives to per uh, particular types of communities, whether that's the rich um, or you know the communities that that stand to benefit from receiving additional capital um, uh, injections. But, you know, there, there's a lot of the, the details matter. I think that's the important takeaway. Mm. Well, I mean, it struck me that maybe one of the differences between different approaches to place-based economic development is sort of like the degree to which the government is involved in a kind of active role in deciding where the investment goes because it sounds to me from your paper like other forms of place-based economic development maybe were a little bit more sort of uh kind of government directed whereas the opportunity zone approach seems to be rather indirect in the sense that the government is sort of offering a subsidy to whoever is interested in claiming it. I mean, how do you think that affects the kind of effectiveness and the sort of function, as it were, of the program as a development tool? Yeah, the, I, I struggle with this one a lot. Um, uh, I, 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 I struggle sort of like um, more intellectually, I think, than practically, because practically, I think it's 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 pretty simple there needs to be community-led efforts to address economic development. So when we're talking about connecting communities to the things that they need to survive, like jobs and healthcare and 
transportation to get them around and, and centers of education. We need to involve communities uh, that um, don't have those things or need access to those things or have been denied those things because of past government programs. The problem is we can't we, we, we can't say, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's your responsibility. You have, you have to sort of pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. That, that doesn't argue, that argument doesn't work. But we need to provide tools for communities to come together and direct economic development in ways that is not uh, in, in ways that are not merely government coming in and saying, we're, we're going to cite this particular project here without taking uh, without involving the public. Um, so there's, you know, there's different ways. So across the country, we're seeing trends where community groups are uh, are bringing are, are, are demanding a seat at the table, whether it's through conversations around community benefits or through community benefits agreements or just share, sharing the benefits of economic development in important ways. And I think that piece is um, in, is missing entirely from the opportunity zone. There's no requirement uh, that there be involvement with uh, with the potential beneficiaries of a project. Uh, so it's the federal government outsourcing economic development to um, individual to to individuals who you know presumably know something. Uh, and this goes, I think, back to the history of opportunity zones. So Sean Parker from Napster is behind the opportunity zone. Uh, Peter Thiel bet Sean Parker. A million dollars that he couldn't pass it through Congress, and you know, he did. And who knows what happened to that million dollars if they have actually got invested in something uh, or a useful project? I don't know. Um, but there's this rely, there's seeming reliance on uh, the wealthy individuals in the private sector, um, you know, and f- fear of uh, sort of you know, not wanting government to to play a role while at the same time saying, you know, picking sides and saying, look, it's this, this group of individuals who will benefit uh, or who, who get to decide rather than the residents who actually live in the communities that or where these zones were designated. And I, I think that's a big problem, um, just, you know, structurally and how the zone was created. Um, so that, so I, I think this is a, the, the fact that the opportunity zone exists is um, you know, re- reflects this uh, you know, kind of com- struggle uh, between community, between um, individuals with capital and with government to decide, you know, to, to decide who decides. Mm-hmm. Well, so I get, I get a sense of skepticism that this sort of opportunity zone approach is really designed to be effective in achieving a lot of the sort of social policy goals that we might think are core to place-based economic development. But I mean, I wonder, you know, to the extent that you think that there's anything potentially good about this kind of approach, what you think that might be and what, if anything, we might do from a policy standpoint to make the Opportunity Zone legislation more likely to be successful in achieving those goals? In the paper, I argue for reform, um, you know, not simply elimination, although some people have argued or have proposed eliminating 
the, the zone entirely, entirely. In Congress, um, Representative Tlaib has introduced a bill to to kill the to kill the opportunity zone. Um, I'm not adopting that approach. I, I think that there is something here to salvage. I think we need to focus on three uh, areas for reform. We need to look at the way the types of projects. We need to look at use. We need to look at transparency or reporting as well as participation. So, with respect to use. Um, just letting any project get built, which is what the zone, the opportunity zone currently, allow, the law currently allows, does not adequately reflect the needs of poor rural and urban areas where the funds are coming in. It's not just that we need money, period. It's that communities need things like housing, healthcare centers, education facilities, and the transportation to help folks get around um, and access jobs. So having some type of conversation around use and, and including some type of mechanism to restrict use or at least guide use to particular goals is important. With respect to transparency, some type of reporting, currently there's none. I think having no reporting requirements, especially for something as, as important as an economic development subsidy, is a, you know, is a horrible way to uh, judge the success of a program uh, or of, a, or of a, a new tool. So requiring investors to report on the projects that they're doing and the particular outcomes that they have instead of our current system of voluntary reporting um, is a key aspect to any type of reform effort. And then with respect to participation, the, the fact that no stakeholder, um, uh, that there's no stakeholder opportunities or chances for individuals to get, or groups to get involved is a big issue. Um, you know, certainly if there's, if there's a new development, uh, or if there's an opportunity zone investment that requires or project that requires uh, some type of local approval, then yeah, you know, community groups can weigh in if there's a zoning amendment uh, required or if uh, developers are trying to take advantage of an additional tax subsidy through, let's say, an industrial development agency or something like that. There is a participation mechanism, but there's no participation required through the opportunity zone itself. And I think that's a big problem. And there's easy ways to fix it. You know, I, I mentioned with the new markets tax credit program involving mission-based organizations that are already certified by Treasury as having some type of mission to advance the issue, the, the needs of low-income communities. That, that would be, a, I think, a, a, that's a model for legislative reform. Now, I, I do think there are you know, possible benefits of the Opportunity Zone, and um, you know, in, in my research, I've been looking for them and have been engaging to, to, uh, to some extent with projects that are being reported, and I think it's, it's important to highlight those, uh, you know, that qualitative information about projects that uh, you know, do have some benefit or, or do, are having some successes. But it's also important to quantitatively assess uh, in, in some way where where the where the money is actually flowing to and what benefit it's having. Now, it's it's really just a word about assessment. Um, it's really hard to determine that a particular tool, whether it's the Opportunity Zone or some other type of subsidy, is moving the needle in a in a given area just because of the types of overlapping tools that can be used. Because there's state job creation tax credits, which was you know sort of the the uh, when Amazon went shopping for a, a uh, second headquarters, 
uh, those were the types of we, I think we we heard a little bit, at least in the popular media, about the types of incentives available at the state and local level, um, and the, specifically the abuses that, that are ripe um, with respect to those subsidies. Now, just because there's overlapping subsidies, it, it can be difficult to say, you know, this opportunity zone is having a greater impact than, let's say, this other state-based uh, state subsidy. So there's, there's challenges there, but... Um, you know, not asking or not requiring investors to report at all on what they're doing, I think is a, is a recipe for failure uh, from the beginning. Um, so th those are, those are you know, that's how I think about reform. And that's what I'm advocating for with this, um, you know, with this scholarly intervention. Great. Well, Ted, I really appreciate talking to you today. And I hope these observations you've made about opportunity zone legislation and place-based economic development more generally are taken up by legislators because it seems like a important and appropriate way to think about how we might help communities that are really struggling. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. And I, and I you know, just, I guess in, in closing, I'd say, you know, some, there are, there are some states to look at. Um, Oregon has, uh, introduce some state level laws to ensure that benefits are flowing to low income communities. I think, you know, there's some states that, um, you know, so, so Oregon's one example, you know, Boulder, Colorado has initial initially banned opportunity zone, um, uh, in projects from their, from, from Boulder, uh, recently have, have, uh, made opportunity zones part of the zoning process. So, uh, they, um, the, the city council there has said, you know, if you're going to do a project, you have to do it in a particular area. Um, you know, Portland is experimenting in, in another way, sort of excluding the, the neighborhoods that could benefit in focusing development in their central business district. Uh, you know, we'll continue to look at and research and you know, other folks who are writing and, and studying this um, in this area will do, will do that, too. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I you know, appreciate you having me on and, and sharing some time with your listeners. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Ted. Well, thanks, Brian.